0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report. I'm your host, Vago Muradian. Joining us today is Dr. Kayoki Jackson, the Senior Vice President and General Manager at the National Security Sector at MITRE, one of the nation's federally funded research and development centers. Uh, he is here to discuss the report that MITRE uh, produced in partnership with the Aspen Security Group. A Sum Greater Than Its Parts, Integrated Deterrence, and Strategic Competition, and much of it is aimed uh, at China Kayoki, Thanks very much for joining us, and it was terrific seeing you at the Aspen Security Forum uh, at the end of uh, last year on December 7, in fact, when you guys uh, presented uh, the report for the first time. Indeed, Pearl Harbor Day. It was great to see you then. It's great to be
1: uh, here with you and with your audience today.
0: Uh, And I should I should commend to people that the conversation that you had uh, with uh, Dr. Mara Carlin, uh, who is now doing uh, the semester at sea, she's left uh, the department uh, and it's and it's our loss and certainly her gain to be doing an adventure like that. Uh, and Liz Rosenberg uh, was there, the Assistant Secretary of Treasury for terrorist financing and financial crimes and, and the inimitable uh, Peter Spiegel of the Financial Times did a terrific job moderating your guys' discussion. Um, you have been thinking about this problem and we've spoken before, uh, Keoki, about, uh, you know, sort of the notion of integrated deterrence. This is a series of of reports you guys have been working on on this at, at, at MITRE. Um, And the notion of integrated deterrence is integral to the way the Biden administration has been structuring its national security strategy, its national defense strategy. uh, And indeed, some have pointed to the reaction to the Ukraine invasion as an integrated effort by the United States to deter further aggression. Although some look at this as a typically academic Washington BS term that's more pablum than it is uh, reality. From, From your standpoint, why is it critical, right? What is integrated deterrence? Why is it critical deterring China, uh, which is an authoritarian regime that that actually does bring together the integrated arms of national power in a way uh, that actually sometimes surprises us? Walk us through what the case for it is and why it's important. You bet, Vago. And
1: maybe I'll just start with a you know a brief description of deterrence, uh, and then we'll talk a little bit about the why and why now. And then we can get into the specifics more on integrated deterrence and what's different there. So deterrence, uh, this is all about shaping an adversary's thought process, right? And with the intent to prevent conflict or prevent the escalation of conflict. Uh, So hopefully getting away from, you know, having to get through a conflict and prevail in conflict, but actually prevent that from ever occurring. So that's the the shaping piece that's uh, part of deterrence, and of course, that's all about the adversary's thought process. So now you can say, well, why integrated deterrence? Why today? And that begs the question, well, what's different about today? And I'm going to highlight four specific elements that make this really uh, different today. I think the first is that there is no clear distinction now between peacetime and wartime. Uh, there we really are on a continuum uh, that includes competition, crisis and conflict and moving uh, as we see in many of the events around the world today, whether in uh, Taiwan, in Ukraine, in the Middle East, in Israel and Gaza, uh, we can simultaneously be in different parts of this spectrum. And that includes, Cyber coercion, gray zone activities, a whole variety of different activities. The next thing is that China is becoming increasingly dominant. So if you think even, you know, 10 to 20 years ago, uh, the amount of trade, And uh, economic, uh, you know, the the quantitative economics of the relationships between many nations around the world, including the U.S. and China, that is quantitatively different today. And so that dominance in certain economic sectors uh, creates different pressures uh, for them to be able to exert on us uh, and other and our allies. The third is that we're in a, a world today where innovation where economics is is definitely not dominated by the government, by the military. And so public and private integration is critically important. And that really leans on the advantages of the U.S. private sector. Maybe the fourth thing I'll highlight is, and you mentioned um, in in a discussion we had a little while ago about the importance of allies and partners. And so we can't think of this just as the U.S. alone, but really, uh, how do we uh, leverage all of this interconnected allied and partnered uh, ecosystem because those same allies and partners also have uh, dependencies, economic interactions that can be extremely uh, substantial with,
0: with China in particular. So Keoki, uh, to that point, right, and as you uh, said at Aspen, uh, right it was a failure of deterrence that on December 7 1941 uh, right you're uh, a Hawaiian uh, and uh, there was uh, an attack uh, that happened on Pearl Harbor literally as as you were starting that panel actually uh, which was which was uh, interesting what in practice does integrated deterrence look like uh, right and give us some examples on, um, you know, ef- an effective use of that capability. There are those who look at how the administration responded in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine as an integrated effort that included financial tools, foreign policy tools, military, uh, as well as informational. What does it look like? What what's what are some good examples of this that we ought to be shooting for, or or right. cases you could cite?
1: You bet, Fargo. Uh as we think about deterrence, and particularly strategic deterrence, often we think about the threat of overwhelming military response, right? And clearly that's a piece. And for us, that's absolutely backstopped by our strategic nuclear deterrent, uh, which has served admirably for many decades now. But the important thing about integrated deterrence is we're looking at far more than that. So far more than just the military or maybe the other national security arms uh, that make up uh, the deterrence proposition. So maybe some areas that I'd highlight around what integration could mean first is that we have to think integrated across that continuum from competition through conflict. And so Picking tools that can have effects throughout that continuum is really important, and those may change depending on where you are at any given time. So then the next, and you mentioned this, the the element of integration across agencies of government, the interagency, uh, different departments within the U.S. government. So that integration is really important as you start talking about economic tools, uh, sanctions, export controls, and some of the other elements, uh, including uh, statecraft, of course. So that whole diplomatic, uh, the informational, the military, and the economic dimensions as well. Uh, then you can think about integration with the public and the private sector because we have this enormous and really uh a valuable and dynamic private sector in the United States, it's one of our incredible great strengths. And then one more that I'll add, and this is really important is that integration with our allies and partners, because Mm -hmm. we have not just military integration, but economic integration, different uh, uh, opportunities to work in an integrated geography as well. Uh, So those are the things that we think about in terms of integration and the different dimensions that the United States needs to be paying attention to in today's
0: environment. Let me uh, take you to the question of how we actually do that, right? Um, Integration. Uh, we have seen, and administrations can work well in this one, I think there is generally uh, a good relationship among the cabinet secretaries, so you end up having productive outcomes. We've also seen administrations where it's literally been a lot of uh, strife, right, whether in the Clinton administration and some of the disconnects between Madeleine Albright and Bill Cohen, or even during the Bush ad- administration. And Liz Rosenberg did a great, made a great point, right, you do need some friction and competition in this, Right. From your standpoint, what are the recommendations that get us to better structural outcomes when it comes to looking at strategic deterrence and actually executing it? Two things that come out
1: right at the top, obviously, are enhancing our interagency coordination and the way we uh, we mechanize the decision-making processes. And to that, there's a little bit of the how as well, uh, strengthening the infrastructure for doing that integration. And you know, a lot of this is, I don't want to say it's ad hoc today, but there's an element of, uh, of relationships and certainly an element of, um, of chance and how this may occur at any given time. So think about, you know, in, in defense parlance, we talk about command and control or C2. Now C2 in this case, we could think probably more usefully about coordination and cooperation, given the uh, the different parts of the government that need to be integrated here. But the same kinds of ideas uh, pr- prevail, right? We need courses of action and the ability to judge those uh, on their merits. We need to do campaigning like we would do in the DOD, but now across all of these elements of diplomatic, informational, military, economic uh, actions. And so that necessitates better planning, particularly economic planning, the better ability to identify these opportunities for coupled effects, economic effects, military planning, uh, and not use and applying the thought processes and the tools that we have developed in the DoD for mission command and control, but applying them in the context of uh, this
0: cross agency or interagency integration. The DOD really, um, and I think Peter brought this up uh, in in the in the panel, right, is is not the 800-pound gorilla. I mean, it's the 1,200-pound gorilla in the room. It's better staffed. It has more people. They tend to be better educated, right? I mean, in, in the State Department, if you don't get your advanced degree, you're not going to be able to get it once you begin as a Foreign Service officer. They, they just don't have the bandwidth for that. How do you structure this? How do you do this when one department has the people, has the organization, has the strength, has the money, um, whereas other pieces of this may be more important, right? Having the State Department out front or Treasury out front, H- how do we need to structure this? And do we need a broader, edu- edu- you know, I mean, do do the other departments have to look at the way they train and prepare their people and have that bench depth differently than than we do it in the military, right? Because Because the military ends up in the lead just because it has the people and the money. Yeah, maybe we'll come not. back to the come back to the people and
1: the cultural aspects. Uh, first and foremost, we need to formalize some of the mechanisms here, and so that is processes that should be written down. Uh, the decision on who takes the lead, and frankly, that that lead may be different depending on where you are in that continuum from uh, competition to conflict. It doesn't always have to be the Department of Defense. And then we should look at best athletes, right? And so we need to have a more seamless approach to being able to choose both the leaders and then who will actually execute some of the, the pieces there. And so that's where you start talking about playbooks and how do you actually call a play and how maybe do you change a play Uh, when you're in the middle of action, situations change. And so really working to start formalizing and documenting that's really important. I do want to make another key point, though. China does this, but in a very rigid and top-down fashion. And I submit that that is not what we want in the United States. We don't want to adopt the Chinese Communist Party approach here. And so we need something that... You know, leverages the f- inherent flexibility of our cultural attributes and the way we work. It leverages the different capabilities across the agencies and the government. It allows for adaptability. And I think that is where the U.S. can come up with a different model that doesn't fall into the rigidity and the you know the error-prone ways of having a rigid top-down uh,
0: model like the CCP. Do we... Um... You know, I mean, you've been at this uh, for uh, a while. I'm not trying to date you uh, at all. Um, you know, the last several administrations have been talking about this notion of of smart power or more integrated uh, power. Um, I think this administration is is certainly trying to implement that. I think on China, you saw the last administration try to at least get its horses more uh, aligned uh, uh, on this. Um from from your standpoint, are we getting better at it? And what are the nature of the internal conversations? Uh, I mean, you guys had a real star-studded group of people who were also participating and advising on this effort. Um, are, Are you seeing the needle moving and a consensus forming to more formalize some of these, right? I mean, somebody has to be in charge. So the National Security Advisor, for example, is probably the right place for that. And I couldn't agree with you more, right? I mean, there are some things you do want the State Department out front. And I think this administration is putting Antony Blinken out front. Are, are you seeing a sort of a sense that people are trying to work through what these, both the scenarios look like, right? To do that planning. And then the mechanisms on how to ensure kind of a competitive system, but one that actually has some more discipline. coordination to it?
1: Yeah, maybe the best thing to do is just give a couple of examples here, and and starting with the the work on sanctions and controls around Russia in particular. uh, And clearly, we haven't had all the effects that we might have desired. I think from a coordination perspective, that is a tremendous example of working across the United States government, you know, treasury, state, uh, DoD and others uh, to implement a set of controls there. Uh, but even more important probably is the the cooperation, the collaboration with our international allies and partners. So that and and we see that response evolving over time. It's uh, challenging and it's a cat-and mouse game uh, to be sure, but we need to have that continuous update, the information that's required, the information sharing and then the flexibility. I uh, you talked about who leads let me give an example um this is the case where uh the joint in, uh, joint interagency task force jihad of south so a, a this is actually led um as a sub element under united states southern command Southcom, uh but it's run by the coast guard and <laughs> The whole, and to, to describe what that does, it's really geared towards things like illicit trafficking, you know, drugs, uh, weapons, uh, human trafficking, and so on. But it leverages more than 20 agencies uh, across the US government, uh, including the Department of Justice, uh, the Department of Homeland Security, and many more. So that's an example where you have a, you know, Nominally a military lead, but run uh, by a different component and leveraging across the government. And maybe another example: one of the one of the malign influences uh, of China are the things that they're doing to coerce uh, many small and vulnerable nations to uh, to essentially toe the line to China's desires. And we need to do more and do better uh, to help those nations. And typically, these are relatively modest investments. But in the uh, Solomon Islands uh, in 2020, this kicked off a $25 million investment in a program called SCALE. Uh, This is led by USAID, uh, but it really is building capacity and resilience for the Solomon Islands, which is one of the the poorest countries uh, in the Pacific there. And uh, so that's an example of using soft power and economic statecraft versus, say, economic security or economic warfare.
0: So the good news is you're actually seeing progress, I guess would be the answer, right? That we're starting to do some of the things that we need to be doing to better uh, compete without necessarily having the, the rigidity that goes with it. Absolutely. Now, what we need to do is take these point examples
1: and turn it into a system, a systemic and a systematic approach with that coordination and cooperation, the defined playbooks and the the established mechanisms and pathways.
0: What are the best ways uh, to do that, Kaoki? Right. I mean. Um... Right. I mean, you're a scientist, you're an astrophysicist, right? And there's academic discipline to it, right? It it doesn't matter if you're in oceanography or astrophysics, right? I mean, the the basic fundamentals are the same. Is this you know, is is this a Kennedy school? You know, I mean, is it is it that at universities this process has to be like where where's the way to sort of inculcate and train people so it's not necessarily on the job training? Because, you know, if you if you're Tutored by a karaoke who believes in integrated deterrence or a Dr. Kathicks or or a Dr. Mara Carlin, then the subsequent generations will be trained the right way. If if they're, hey, this is about the hegemony of hard power and you know all of these other guys are wusses and we're the guys in charge, then you're going to create a generation of people who, you know, that's their formative and foundational. Uh, experience, right? I mean, what's what's your sense on on how we actually do this? Because the United States government doesn't necessarily have a singular. I mean, do you teach it through the war colleges? What's what's the way to to do this? To get yeah, the word, it's the probably a
1: fair out? question. You know, it, it's not just the policy, but what's the doctrine? What are the concepts of operation? What are the concepts of employment? All the things that we think about in a defense context, we need the right. equivalent for the interagency. Uh, what kind of people do we need? I, I will argue strongly that this is an opportunity where having people that have moved across different kinds of roles across the government, but more importantly, have worked with or in private industry, uh, in academia, and have worked with our allies and partners, you know, having those different experiences is going to create the types of people who can have the systems thinking. And this is a systems problem. So that systems thinking to actually enact integrated deterrence and use all of those levers of national power. Um, I think this is going to be very much a case of learning by doing as well. And let me give you a couple of examples on that. I think, first of all, you know, Deterrence that is invisible is not deterrence, right? And so we need to make deterrence not only real, but we need to make it visible. And so that means shining a light on this interagency integration and interagency execution. There's some great opportunities, everything that we're doing in terms of reshoring or friendshoring microelectronics production capability uh, under the CHIPS Act and everything we're doing in terms of supporting emerging technologies there. Uh, We can also do things like focus on the infrastructure that's required, Um, you know, take for example, ports and infrastructure in the South Pacific and visibly making efforts to uh, enhance democratic ownership and control and counter some of the malign effects uh, of China's influence through their One Belt, One Road initiative. So making those things visible, and that means doing them, right? Uh, The second is, and this is another element of visibility, but doing, uh, taking an approach of systematic information sharing across government. So this will inherently connect government in different ways through that information sharing, and I'll also throw our allies in there as well. Clearly, everything that we did in terms of sharing intelligence with our allies ahead of and during the early phase of the Russian invasion is a great example in terms of convincing people what is really happening out there. But there's other elements like our technology uh, security and our foreign disclosure process, making those more systematic and taking advantage of the explosion of commercially and publicly available data, open source intelligence, if you will, uh, so these are areas where we can train people to use new tools and techniques in their toolkits for integration across uh, different government partners, private
0: sector, and international. What, what are what are the Uh You know, you were the chief technology officer uh, at Lockheed Martin uh, for some years. Uh, you have a deep technological background as well as a policy background. I will uh, point out. Um, what's the role of technology in this? Uh, whether as a, a training tool, a visualization tool um, and then I've got a broader technology adoption uh, question uh, across government. But what's the role of technology in helping us try to do this better?
1: Yeah, technology is critical and technology is one of the foundations of our industrial power. It's the frankly the foundation of one of the foundations of what allows us, to use economic means uh, as part of our integrated deterrence and the technologies and industries of the future are going to be equally important. We're seeing that AI revolution unfolding around us in real time. Uh, There are quantum technologies that we suspect could be equally uh, critical. Those are just a couple of examples. So continuing to lead uh, in those areas is going to be critical to integrated deterrence um, and i would say the flip side of that is making sure that we are that our adversaries are not effectively practicing economic warfare against us through things like illicit technology transfer or intellectual property theft which i, I would argue are uh, that that is very much happening uh, by the Chinese and others today so um, so technology is absolutely going to be critical but Technology alone is not the answer, and we struggle not with technology development and creation, but particularly in a a warfighting sense, the adoption of that technology, the integration, because having a technology by itself that uh, doesn't have the rest of the doctrine, the concept of operations, the training, the sustainment, the logistics. Uh, the modernization that needs to go along with that technology, essentially you're, you have an island that's disconnected from the rest of the levers of the military uh, establishment. So it's not just the technology, it's the adoption, but then the scaling. And I'm, I will say I am encouraged by some things happening in the department today. There's, you know first would be the example of the Raider program, the Rapid um, Experimentation Reserve, Defense Experimentation Reserve, RDER. Uh, and then you have the replicator program, and those are very much geared at experimenting with new technologies in or, or operationally relevant environments, but then taking them to scale in timeframes of months rather than decades. So those are a couple of examples of the adoption, the acceleration, and then the
0: scaling and integration that we need as a nation for technology. Uh, I was also, you know, there was a little side of me that was going to say, like, wow, well, you know, are, are you going to say we need slack for government, right, that allows to have a little bit more of a fluid interagency process as opposed to sneaker net emails uh, and then long tank meetings, you know, is, is there a way to sort of automate and sort of foster greater collaboration, which we do through, right, a whole variety of chat rooms, but we tend to do those chat rooms in in each one of our individual silos, right, as opposed to sort of breaking outside of them. Um, I mean, yeah. is there look, is, look, is there a look, role for something like that, or am I being a little Pollyanna?
1: You're absolutely right. We need to take advantage of the same kinds of, I'd say, productivity and innovation and information sharing tools that work in the in the private sector and bring that to government. And there are there are places where that's happening. I would go beyond that though, Um, you know, think about what is an artificial intelligence enabled government design of government and how the people should work every day. Those are conversations that are very much happening in private industry. And we need to encourage the same speed, you know, acceleration and adoption of this new toolkit uh, in areas of government uh, with appropriate assurance and controls in place.
0: I will make that uh, point very strongly. Right. Um, I was I was going to point out that uh, you know Lockheed Martin certainly has collaborative tools for some of the most sensitive and top secret programs that go across the enterprise, uh, and and so you know there are ways to create tool sets that are interagency tool sets that don't just stop at the borders of you know the Defense Department, the State Department, and 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 what have you. I wanted to take um, to build on that last question and draw on your experience as a technologist. We've got a couple of minutes left, but I wanted to get your sense and take on innovation. You know, it's, it's great. Dr. Arthi Prabhakar is advising uh, the president on science. She's a former DARPA director and, and somebody who's got you know, a great policy and technology pedigree. But Kayuki, it seems like we're doing each one of these things in silos, right? The Pentagon has its own innovation initiatives that are ongoing. You mentioned replicators as one of those efforts. There are many. Um, then DHS is doing its thing, right? Each of the departments seems to be doing their their thing. What's a more holistic, and, and to use your phrase, an integrated approach we can take across government? I know that uh, the White House is integrating on AI. Uh, that's important. And certainly on quantum, these are cross-cutting. But do we, do we have the right infrastructure in place to try to actually be able to implement cross-government innovation or, or benefit? Right? I mean, the guys at Treasury could be doing something brilliant that could solve a particularly interesting problem at DoD on, on data or uh, analytics, uh, for example. Yeah, many of the
1: comments I said about technology certainly apply to innovation as well. We don't have a lack of innovation uh, in the U.S. or with our allies and partners, but we do struggle sometimes with the uh, adoption and the scaling. As I think about the infrastructure, I think one of the virtues of our system, uh, you know, think of us as an inherently market-based approach, uh, open and uh, transparent to the extent we can be given the requirements of security. If we double down on those attributes, I believe we will continue to out-innovate, but also uh, out-compete with that innovation. So let us not try for that command and control approach, but really take away the barriers, reduce the friction, increase the, the investments in the things that enable technology and innovation. And you asked about the infrastructure and I will I will say very strongly you know, we are living off seed corn that we invested uh, in the 40s, the 50s, and the 60s when you look at the infrastructure for science and technology in this nation, whether it's our national laboratories, our service laboratories, uh, NIST, if you go to those places what you'll see is crumbling infrastructure, huge, uh, deferred maintenance and maintenance backlogs. Uh, we need to reinvest in that fundamental infrastructure, including the infrastructure that enables the peoples working or the people working in these incredibly uh, important institutions to make them the, or continue to make them the engine for many of the inventions and the
0: innovations that have made our life what it is today. You know, I I couldn't agree with you more. It's great to see the Chips and Science Act. uh, But if you have been really under investing in uh, the people, right? I mean, during the Cold War, we had a whole, you and I have talked about this before, right? During the Cold War, we had a great series of programs to encourage people to go into engineering and the sciences, whether the government was going to pay the tuition or, you know, give you a tax break or what have you. And the question is whether or not, you know, it's great that we're doing it on semiconductors, But actually, there are so many other fields that we need to have a more disciplined, you know, invest for success approach, don't we? Look, there's a lot of things that
1: we need. The Defense Department, the intelligence community have some very specific and bespoke needs, which we absolutely need to invest in. And I think we need to invest in the the infrastructure again. Uh, but then reducing barriers uh, to the economics of having successful innovation in the United States. So I won't go into great detail there, but let me point out, you know, you think about integrated deterrence, the integration is really important. And so we don't call it aggregated deterrence, right? We're not talking about throwing spaghetti against the wall and see what sticks and then throw some more spaghetti up, right? But really orchestrating the plays, the tools, the, uh, the approaches to enable a, an integrated response across those diplomatic, economic, military, and informational levers, right? So, so keeping the focus on the tools of integration is gonna be important. And then, and, and humor me for a moment, you know, this is an integrated deterrent strategy. We could be tactically strategic. Let me explain what I mean there. You know, we could focus just on what uh, almost a tit-for-tat reaction. What has China done? What do we need to do to prevent China doing the next thing in this uh, this back and forth in competition? Uh, so that would be one way we could approach integrated deterrence. But I I believe we as the United States and with our allies need to take a broader approach. This is what I call being strategically strategic. So... We need to be thinking about what that world order is of the future uh, that guarantees U.S. and allied security and prosperity, that leverages our values, our democratic values, our belief in market-based incentives, uh, our reliance on the rules of the road and a rules-based international order. And that, at the end of the day, is what's going to obliterate a... Chinese slash Russian view of an autocratic transactional might-makes-right world order that none of us want.
0: Kayoki, thanks so very much for joining us. It's always a pleasure having you on the program. Uh, Enormous amounts of food for thought and uh, already looking forward to welcoming you back on again. Thanks so very much. Thank you, Vago. Great to talk with you today. And before we go, uh, the Defense and Aerospace Report is sponsored by HII, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, GE Aerospace, Bell, Leonardo DRS, and American Rhine Metal. Thanks again for joining us. We'll be back again tomorrow, and we'll see you then. Until then, have a great day.